thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we are continuing the book of the study of the, the study of the book of Deuteronomy, and we are going to cover chapter twenty six to twenty eight. Very very important chapters, very powerful chapters. I don't know if you had a chance to actually read them, especially chapter twenty eight, um, but they are some of the most powerful chapters in the Old Testament. And what I propose we do is first. Um, Actually, before we go through those, I wanted to cover, again, a passage from the New Testament just to show you, again, how the New Testament depends so much on the passages we're reading. This is from the book of Gal- the, the letter to the Galatians by St. Paul. Can you hear me clearly, everyone? All right. The, the letter to the Galatians by St. Paul. And if you were here on Sunday, this past Sunday, in, in our liturgy, you would have heard that reading part of the reading was from that letter. So the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians is one of the most, um, how shall I say, um, powerful letter that St. Paul wrote because he was angry. The church in Galatia, we're talking about Catholics, had agreed to go through circumcision. Now, For us, circumcision is a singular act. It's one thing. But in the day of St. Paul, circumcision meant that you were agreeing to go back to the temple and support the entire liturgical cycle of the temple with all the sacrifices. Therefore, you were reverting back to the law of Moses. And St. Paul was very, very angry. Listen to him. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He's saying, was Christ crucified in vain for you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now I'm hoping that at this point, juncture of our study, works of the law, is resonating with you, and it means something. Works of the law means, specifically, all the things that the law of Moses require. All the sacrifices, all the rituals you have to go through if you're unclean. Those are the works of the law. 
So he's asking them, did you receive faith by works of the law, by doing everything that the temple would require you, or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? So he contrasts spirit with flesh. Why? Because there's grace on one side, and there is none on the other. Did you experience so many things in vain? If it really is in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Again. So the whole context that we've been talking about is behind this. Yeah? Now, look at this transition. Thus Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He's now sidestepping the entire law of the Old Covenant we're studying to go back to Abraham. And he's saying, Abraham, and he's quoting Genesis, Abraham believed, talking about what? Talking about the sacrifice of Isaac. What is it that Abraham believed? God told him, take your son, your only son, and offer him a sacrifice. Abraham was convinced he had to offer his son. His son would die. But what did God promise to him? All nations shall be blessed by your seed. So what was then Abraham convinced of? No, not that the son would be okay. No, that God would raise him from the dead. The logic was he would have to sacrifice his son. Abraham had no doubt about that. But by the same logic, God had swore to him, by your seed shall shall all nations be uh, blessed. And if you recall, three men appeared at the tent to announce the birth of Isaac. So he knew it was that one, not another. So he had to walk by faith for three days. It was an agony. That's why it was reckoned to him, because he walked by faith. So that's the point of St. Paul. That Abraham did the work of faith, because any one of you here who, had, who, who suffered next to a child know that that suffering is a lot of work. It wears you down. It tires you. It saps your energy away. Sitting next to somebody and suffering with that person is a lot of work. Especially when you are a Catholic. To keep your faith steady. Not wavering. Not falling into despair. Not allowing yourself to doubt God. But to trust in Him despite what your eyes are seeing. Like Abraham. That is a lot of work. It's acts of hope. Acts of faith. Acts of charity. All of that is what was reckoned to Abraham. That's what St. Paul is saying. So you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, let's be careful. He's not saying... For all who rely on the works of the law are cursed. 
Notice the difference? Because there are some who believe that the Jews are cursed. Because when they asked for Jesus to be crucified, the elders of the Jews said, let his blood come upon us. And therefore some conclude that essentially they're asking for a curse. But that's not the case. They're under a curse. Why? Because of what we're going to read right now. What we're going to study today, I mean. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. All right. Now, it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. He's quoting scripture again. But the law does not rest on faith. For he who does them shall live by them. He's quoting the work of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. And if you recall a couple of studies earlier, we've seen that particular curse. He's quoting directly from the book of Deuteronomy. Right? St. Paul understands with his genius that that one curse that applies, that's the only curse that applies to a specific man in the book of Deuteronomy was aimed at Christ. That Christ took upon himself our curse because he hung from a tree. That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's will. That's a bad translation. It's not a will. It's a covenant. No one annuls a man's covenant or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. You can see how he is now applying to Scripture, beyond the literal sense, which is Isaac, the analogical sense, which is Christ. The lineage from Abraham to Christ is established, and Christ is, by, by flesh, the descendant of Abraham. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is he saying? The, promise, the covenant was established with Abraham. By your offspring shall all nations be blessed. The law of, with Moses came 430 years later after they were in Egypt and they were taken out. That was the law. The law cannot annul what was already established. The covenant was established. Therefore, it is not possible for the law to give grace because that was already given to Abraham before. You see the logic of St. Paul? You see how he's working through it? I mean, St. Paul, Saul, was the outstanding pupil of Gamaliel. He was incredible. And then when God took him, he spent three years thinking really hard about everything he knew and reinterpreting in the light of Christ to give it its proper meaning. The promise was given to Abraham. Then the law came a lot later. But that promise was already established. Nothing can annul it. So what is the law adding to the promise given to Abraham? It's through the faith that man receives life. What is the law about? He's basically telling the Galatians, why are you going back to the law? What's it going to give you? And this is what he answers. Why then the law? And here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. So when we live in a society where laws are multiplied, why then the law? 
on a natural level, they're added because of transgression. Why do we have so many clauses in a tax law? Because of all the loopholes people found to get around paying taxes. So the law becomes complex. You see that? So, it was added because of transgressions till the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and was ordained by angels through an intermediary. He's basically saying that there was a hierarchy from God to the angels to Moses to men. Right? Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if, if a law had been given which could, make, which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the, but the scripture consigned all things to sin. That was what, that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law is not contradicting the promise. It adds to it because of transgression. It was, and he will say it right here. So then the law was our custodian. Our keeper. A babysitter put in place until Christ came. That we may be justified by faith. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You see how he moved on to the language of sonship. Which is impossible under the law. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offsprings. Heirs according to promise. That's what he's explaining to them. You're going back to Abraham. Why? Because those are Judaizers, right? The Judaizers were Christian of Jewish origin who said, no, you still need to go back to the, to the, to the, to the um, temple and you have to obey and support the entire law of Moses because you're the sons of Abraham and you're not like those Gentiles. You're way better than them. And he's basically cutting through the entire argument. And I would add that this, this passage here where he says... Where St. Paul says, I don't think I have it here in this chapter, but it is in this letter that St. Paul says that no one will live by the works of the law. I may have read it, in fact. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? At another point, he basically states it very clearly. No one lives by works of the law. And Luther dropped of the law and kept no one lives by works. He misunderstood what works of the law meant and aimed it squarely at annulling all works. And the reason why Luther did that is because in his own life as a monk, he was an Augustinian monk, he struggled with the sins of lust. And he struggled sincerely for a very long time. And anyone who struggles with that sin will tell you that it's one of the most obstinate and, and a stubborn sin to deal with. It's a tough one to, to, um, to crack. And God only deals with it in his own time. So really, Luther's problem wasn't the spirit of lust. It was the fact that he could not stand himself having to deal with that sin. God was humbling him, but he could just not stand himself and see himself in that situation. So then he decreed that, the, that man, the nature of man, is completely depraved. And if that is the case, how can we be saved? Only when Christ puts a cover on us. And then God the Father sees the cover and sees his son and therefore we are saved. But we are never transformed. You understand that in Protestant theology there is no sanctification. 
there is no transformation. We're just depraved. And regardless of what we do, we're always depraved. And it really stems back from that one particular sin. The reason I'm mentioning this to you isn't so much to talk about Luther, but just to point out a very important fact that all of us must be very cognizant of. Namely, that if we are tempted to rebel against our sinfulness, meaning that when we see ourselves the way we are, sinful, whatever the sin may be, we're tempted to rebel against it. We're tempted to say, I don't accept myself this way. I don't want to be this way. We can be angry. We want to change it. We try different things. Watch out, because that attitude of rebelliousness can torque our theology. Because we are going to conform our understanding of the faith and who God is to suit our conscience, to quiet the pain and the suffering we're going through. Be careful with that, because oftentimes when God puts us in a situation such as this one, he's effectively granting us two gifts, which are invaluable. The first one is the gift of knowledge of self. To know that you're committing a sin and to hate that sin, even when you're committing it, is a great act of faith, hope, and charity. Love for God. Yeah? And the second gift that is no less important is that he is allowing us to serve our purgatory down here. So we shouldn't be throwing those away. It is far better for us, far better for us to spend our entire life being sorry and repentant, dealing with one sin, than conquering that sin and falling into pride. For instance, let's say you fall into gluttony. You then ask for the grace to work with you to, 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 uh, to control your, uh, your uh, gluttony, and you work really hard at it. You get really motivated and do everything you can, and you overcome it. And then secretly... Secretly, meaning without even being aware of it, we ascribe that victory to ourselves. Yeah? Um, I'm going to say one more thing before I go back to that study. We, we make assumptions all the time. And assumptions are so hypnotic, we don't even notice we made an assumption. I'm going to give you one example, very quickly. Some of you may have heard this little riddle, and if you do... Just stay quiet. We'll see how others fare with it. Here's the riddle. A man and his son go up a mountain. There is a rock avalanche. The father is killed instantly. He's dead. Completely dead. Dead. The son is rushed to the ER. The surgeon walks in and says, I cannot operate on him. He's my son. Now, those of you who figured this one out, raise your hand. Because you know you figured it out. It's obvious. And those of you who didn't know, raise your hand. Sounds strange, doesn't it? It sounds strange until you realize that the surgeon is his mom. But you notice how, how hypnotic our assumptions are? We don't even notice we made an assumption. It just happens automatically. You see that? Now, in this case, it's amusing. Yeah. It's amusing. I've done it with so many people at work, even with women who work at work, who are advocating women's rights, and they fall for it. I did it with a bunch of guys... It took them an hour and a half, and they still couldn't figure it out. So at the end, I was so frustrated with them. I told them, look, guys, I'm going to give you a big hint. The surgeon wears a skirt. And one of them said immediately, is this taking place in Scotland? Oh. It just, they, they just could not. They could not deviate from that. doesn't matter. I mean, all walks of life. 
I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how long it takes people to. Why? Because our assumptions happen without our noticing it. Now, this is an amusing little riddle. The, the, the reason I love those riddles is because it trains me to realize, whoa, I make so many assumptions. If I make so many assumptions in this amusing little riddle, how many more am I making when it comes to God, to my wife, to my children? So I, I really, truly recommend that if you've never prayed that prayer, find it. It's the prayer of St. Augustine. It's a beautiful prayer. And it starts with, Lord, let me know myself so I may know thee. Just Google that and you'll find that beautiful prayer of St. Augustine. Beautiful. Knowledge of self is knowledge of God. So if you are suffering because of some sin or because of some weaknesses or because of some failure or because of the fact that you're trying to overcome something and you're not able to, praise God. It's a gift. He's keeping you from pride. He's keeping you from vanity. He's keeping you from becoming conceited. And he's teaching you contrition. He's teaching you compunction of heart. He's teaching you to run to him. He's keeping you close to him. Not a bad place to be. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, let me try and repeat that. All right. What I'm saying is that it's better, it's better for us to suffer to suffer a failure or to suffer before some sin and being aware of the fact we're committing this sin, being aware that we wished tomorrow we die rather than committing that sin, praying to God and asking to help us overcome it, being sorry that we're committing it, and still failing at it, then, then overcoming it and being filled with pride. So, if anything else, if anything else, we need to remember the word of St. Paul, I do not judge myself. And talk about a critical mind. I do not judge myself. That's really hard for us. Very hard for us to accept our weaknesses, to accept our failures, and to say, Lord, I cannot deal with the situation. You can, not me. And then wait patiently for him to come to our help. When we're confused, when we feel that we're lost, when we have a sense that nobody's there to help us, when we think we're in a completely dark corner, it's because we're not seeing the light around us. God's mercy is not what we think it is more often than not. All right. Let's move on. So what I want to do tonight is um, chapter 26. I'm just going to talk first about chapter 26 briefly, but it's important. In chapter 26, basically it's a closure of the whole law that we've been um, essentially going over in these past lectures. Right? Moses is now concluding this, this, uh, this um, teaching. And there are a couple of highlights really important for us to keep in mind. First, in chapter 26... Moses urges, he sums, up, he sums up Israel's duty and urged them to obey wholeheartedly. And he underscores the fact that there are more than, this is more than details of a legal code. 
He's basically saying God is not interested in you keeping a checklist and going through it and doing it for legalistic purposes. That's not what God wants. This law is a custodian, like St. Paul said, due to transgression. But if you, Israelites, keep that law out of love of God, then even in that law, you will find the faith of, Mo, of Abraham. The law is not set against faith. Let's be very clear. The law is not an obstacle to faith. It is a custodian, a strict one. But if one is able to obey the law out of love of God, then God comes and meets him. And then he discovers the faith of Abraham. That's why there were many, many righteous among Israel. And that's why Israel was the holiest of all nations, because of this. There was an avenue for them to meet God, if they were to do the law, obeying it wholeheartedly with their entire heart. And we all know what that means. I can go home, and I can do all my duties as a husband and a father, out of a sense of duty. And I would have completely missed the boat. I would have completely missed the boat. Why? Because I would have become an impediment to grace. Grace flows out of love. The vehicle of grace is love. Without love, there is no grace. And I'm, don't take it from me, take it from St. Paul, right? I can raise the dead, I can feed the hungry, I can do miracles, this and that and the other. If I have not love, I am nothing. Right? So, on that topic, God is love, yes? All right. Here's, here's what I would like for you to add to that little sentence. God is love. Add the following. God is love, yes, on the altar. God is love on the altar. You want to encounter God? Come to Mass. That's His act of love. On the altar. And so should we be, right? Same way. So, it is important, just as to the Israelites, you can't just come to Mass out of... I mean, okay, you're coming to Mass out of sense of duty, great. I salute you. Wonderful, come to Mass. right? Because the sacrament still works on his own. That's the grace of Christ. But hopefully, we come to Mass out of love. And love is not... I'm not talking about emotion. I'm not talking that we're coming here and we're filled with, you know, scent of roses and... Uh, Peace and uh, we're just floating in. That's what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the will to say, I'm coming, Jesus, because I love you. Because I owe you my worship because you truly is, you are God and you are adorable. And I'm here to adore you. And then I come here and I'm hit by distractions and I even think and remember what I said earlier? The weaknesses, the, the failures. Yeah. God often is glorified in those weaknesses and failures. Say, Blessed Mother, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Always remember this. 
God is not asking you to be successful. He's asking you to be faithful. That's all. Faithful. So, in that faithfulness, there's love. And we all know that. We all know when we're growing up, we may not have been completely aware of our mothers loving us. But afterwards, when we think about their faithfulness, their constant presence, all the care and the sacrifices they've done for us, we realize the meaning of love. It has taken root in our heart invisibly. We've never seen it happen, but it's there. So that's what he's telling them. The relationship with the Lord in the covenant is not purely emotional or spiritual association, but entails mutual obligation with consequences. That, that would be, if you had to remember anything from this entire study, it would be that one verse. Mutual, mutual, mutual obligations with consequences. Faith must be practical. Faith is in flesh. We worship with our body. We express our faith with our body. We stand, we kneel, we genuflect. We, as a human body, mind, soul, spirit, and flesh, as a human person, believe. Therefore, our entire being must be engaged in that act of belief. Therefore... We have obligations. Our obligations, thanks to Jesus, are much lighter than the ones given to the Israelites. That's what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, I'll give you my yoke, for it is light. What is his yoke? Sometimes we kind of wonder about that. What is right here? It's the seven sacraments. It's the laws of the church, what the church requires of us. Very light indeed, compared to the 634 I'd like any one of us to see him coming with a calf and sacrificing him. Yeah, you can imagine that. So, very light. So, but, but listen, obligations. If you live your faith covenantly, you understand you've entered into covenant with Jesus Christ. He's the faithful one. He's the one who will never deceive you. His word is one and true. Yeah? Okay. And I, I, I told you this many, many times. So those of you who are married, when you renew your marital vows, you're renewing a covenant. Well, what are you doing in that covenant? You're coming to God and you're saying, we are the weak ones. We are two sinners. And on our own, there is no way we're going to be able to make that marriage what it needs to be. There's no way. You, gotta be re- you have to realize that. Marriage, a Catholic marriage, is... Madness according to the world. It makes no sense that you want two people to live together for 50 years and love each other. Love, not just tolerate each other or create some compromise like two neighboring states who live in a state of peace because they signed an agreement. That's not what marriage is. Yeah? We, we, we can't make that happen. We don't have that kind of love in us. But he said... At Cana, when he turned water into wine. None of us can turn water into wine. He did. That's the meaning of it. I'm going to take water. I'm going to turn it into the best wine. Not not anyone. The best wine. 
That's what marriage is for him. Do you believe him? Do you believe he can do that despite your weaknesses and your failures and your sinfulness? Because if you do, you can call upon his covenant. You can say, Jesus, you remember at Cana what you did? What you said? Well, it's old me right now. I'm the water and it's pretty murky. But you said you'll turn that water into wine. Here I am. Go ahead. He has an obligation to do that because he put himself under that obligation. He took on that covenant. Yeah? So what is our part in this business? Simply to be faithful. That's it. Not to be successful. Not to, we don't have to have PhDs in parenting. Why? We're not called to be successful in that sense. We're called to be faithful. He will take that wine, that water, and turn it into the best of wine. And who do you think will be the first to be surprised? Us. I'm sure many of you have wonderful kids, and people come and compliment you on your children. It happens to me. They compliment my children. And I stand there thinking, okay, uh, thank you, but I, I've, I've got nothing to do with it, really. You need to look at the cross. He's the one who made that, all that happen. Because on my own, with my head and my intellect and my way of thinking, I'd have made a mess of it. It's him. That's what's important. So understand you are under in, in a covenant with him. There are the blessings and there are curses. That's what Moses is telling them. There are obligations. Take it seriously. That's what it means to have the fear of God. Take God seriously. Both ways. Not What I mean seriously, I don't mean go hide from him. I mean seriously, take him on his word. He said he's going to make something happen. Well, come and ask for it. And if you don't, really, you're making him sad. Because you're showing unbelief. You understand? So if you're gripped by sentiments of, oh, well, I'm not worthy and I'm, I must be punished... And I've done so many terrible things that God must punish me. Right? Set those aside. They're just temptations. You don't know. I don't know. What is justice? We don't know. We're not God. God is just. We're not. So why are we bothering figuring out what justice is for ourselves? We don't know ourselves enough to be able to figure out what is right or what is wrong. We can't untangle all that web. So never mind that. Just shun that. Don't even listen to this voice. Anytime you hear a voice in your head focusing in on you in that way, culpability and guilt and you did those terrible things, you completely understand this is not from God. Why? Because it's taking you away. Yeah? If a voice is focusing on you to make you realize all the things that God has done for you, yeah, that is from God. So anytime you hear that voice, just shun it away. Just throw it away. Turn around say simply, thank you, Jesus. I'm a speck of dust, but for some reason you love the speck of dust. Beats me. And believe in his mercy in that way. Knowing his justice, believe in his mercy because he promised it. And that's why it's so important for us to have a crucifix. That's why Catholics have crucifix, not crosses. And that's why we should never have a resurrected Jesus behind the altar. Why? Why is it so important to have that crucifix over here? Because that is the promise of the covenant right behind us. That's the assurance 
that he's going to make that happen. That's his proof of love. When you see that crucifix, you should say, I love you too, Jesus. Because that's what he's saying right now. That's the reason why we have crucifixes. Because Jesus is saying, I love you. And I signed that love with my blood. And whenever I promised, I will make happen because I'm God. That's why it, the crucifix isn't a morbid thing that we Catholic li- like to look at death. That's not it. It's the proof of God's love for us who are completely undeserving of his love. So we rejoice in it despite all our sinfulness. You know, it's much, much harder for any one of us. Much harder. Much harder. To know that we're sinful. To know that we have sinned. And to stand under the gaze of Jesus. It's hard. But that's what faith compels us to do because his love is greater than our sins. So therefore, we do it, if nothing else, for him. Not for us, for him. Because he paid the price, we might as well console him for the price he paid. So don't think about you standing in front of Jesus with, with however you think of yourself, for you. Don't focus on that. Focus on him. He paid that price. So at the very least, stand there for him. If you love him, that's how you show it. You just stay there, like Our Lady. You stay there. I mean, I mean Our Lady, not because she committed all these sins. She didn't. So don't get me wrong, right? But she stayed there despite all the suffering. Why? For him. Because she knew what he was doing. So you know what he was doing. So just stay there. Stay there. Don't leave. Despite all you might think about yourself, how horrible of a person you are, drop all that and focus on him. That's how we show our love. And then we call upon that covenant because he promised. Jesus, you promised. And I know you're faithful and your word is one. Whatever you promised will happen. So believe it. So, in the summary sentence of that chapter, this verse 16 echoes the introductory passage that immediately preceded the laws. Take care to observe all the laws and rules that I have said before you this day. Take care to observe. Take care to observe all the rules and laws, etc., etc. Right? And I've told you many, many times that one way for all of us to show our love for Jesus is to take care to observe all the laws of the church, particularly when we celebrate the Mass. And we do it not because we're legalistic, not because we want to have a checklist, but we do it because we want to show Jesus that his sacrifice that led to the establishment of the church and all the good things that came out of the church is something that we take with, that we don't take for granted. That we appreciate that down to the smallest detail because even that smallest detail is something he paid with his blood. That's why we do it. And I've told you that in order to renew the Catholic Church, we start right here in worship. When we worship in spirit and in truth, in a loving relation to Jesus, miracles will start to happen. Remember when he was in uh, his own town in um, Nazareth? Right? His own people did what? Isn't that the son of Joseph, the carpenter? And what did they do? They took him up to the hill and wanted to throw him headlong. They wanted to kill him. So in that town, he, in his own town, he made the least number of miracles. Do you understand what's happening in the church now? Yeah, we are 
Nazareth. That's why the church is in the state the church is, and that's why the world is in the state the world is in. And we think we need to go fix the world. Yeah, we do, but not before we fix our relationship with Jesus. Not before we start worshiping in truth and in spirit. It's counterintuitive, again, because we think we need to do stuff. First thing we need to do is love him. Then he will take care of the rest. That's essentially the essence of that law that Moses is communicating to them. I mean, I really, really, really feel for Moses. And I really, really, really thank God that I was not Moses. Because I think that the cross he had to bear was tremendous. I mean, imagine a man with the understanding and wisdom that Moses had, faced with the people who don't get it. I mean, at all. And for 40 years, he's leading them in the desert, trying to teach them about that loving relationship with God. And all they're getting is, okay, so let's see. What is the, what is the recipe here exactly what I'm supposed to do? This is the best of them. And the other ones are, okay, let me see. Where are the loopholes? And we're going to see that in a minute, right? What are the loopholes? It must have been so hard for him to carry that weight. But we can learn so much from him. From him, He's such a model for us because of what he had to do. The walk he had to walk with God. So, now, verse 11. Listen carefully, because Christmas is around the, you know, and we're all in Advent right now, so hopefully you are all offering up something during Advent because it's a preparation. Right? Advent is we take something away from us, not we, not we stuff ourselves, right? Yeah. And you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Notice, community. He's not saying you individually, you will rejoice. You collectively, you will rejoice. And you shall rejoice. It's a command. You're, he's commanding them to how do you how do you command somebody to rejoice? Here, I'm gonna command you. Rejoice. Does that get you anywhere? No. So what does he mean by you shall rejoice? It's an act of the will. Anytime we say you shall, that's the will. How does the will rejoice? The will rejoice by applying, applying the intellect to reflect on all the good things that the Lord has done for us we should be able to think about at least 10 things, 10 things that the Lord has done for us today. And if you sit down and try that, you'll find that it's actually not that easy. We're hard-pressed to come up with 10 things because as soon as we start thinking about the good things that God done for us, all our wants and needs and desires come galloping like a herd of bisons and just destroying everything on the path. We can't even think straight. But that spirit of gratitude is so essential to realize what God has done for us. Right? You should rejoice. Rejoicing simply means recognizing that God is in our life. God is with us, Emmanuel. That means we're realizing what God has done for us. And we trust Him that He will take care of all the other things that we need. We don't know how it's going to happen. We may not even understand or see it. But we walk by faith. Those two things, right? Faith, hope, and that's what 
rejoicing means. When we apply ourselves to those three cardinal virtues, we rejoice. That's rejoicing. This is how we can actually rejoice. Now, emotions may be there, may not be there. We may feel at peace, we may not. That's not under our control. We cannot do nothing about them. Those are like clouds. They come and they go, like the weather. But the will and the intellect can apply themselves to rejoice in the Lord at all times. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart, with all your soul. Notice, heart and soul. So it's a relationship of love. Moses is not interested in legalities. You have declared this day, you have declared this day concerning the Lord that he is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his ordinances and will obey his voice. That's what you declared. And the Lord has declared this day concerning you that you are a people for his own possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments. Let me ask you this question. Can you think of a situation where you have a party of two, one declaring something and the other one declaring something? Not every day. In a specific, I'm thinking about a specific thing, a specific situation. We call a wedding. A wedding. During wedding vows. I take you as my wife, and I promise to do all these things. And likewise, the wife, the woman, makes the same declaration. This is covenantal relationship. Israel is the bride, God is the groom. Marital imagery represents the relationship of God to Israel, and even more so, of Christ to the church. So, what is the purpose of marriage then? The first purpose of marriage? In the Unitive Procreative Act and all of this, what is the purpose of marriage? Marriage is a Bible. The family is a Bible. It's the Word of God teaching us about God. It's the Word enfleshed. Not incarnated, enfleshed, meaning that it is in us, in our relationship within the family, that we're supposed to learn about the Trinity. That's what the family that's why the family is so sacred and so important to God. Just as sacred as the, as the scriptures are. And you just don't go deforming the scriptures and changing words in them here and there willy-nilly just because you, it suits your fancy. Likewise, you don't mess with the family. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. Because it's distorting the image of the Trinity. Alright. Now, let's move on to chapter 27. So in here, what I would like to do for chapter 27 and 28, obviously, I only have uh, very little time, so I might start tonight with chapter 27, um, and then um, next uh, week we'll probably cover chapter 28 and the rest of it. We'll see how this goes, but uh, I've prepared for you a summary for both chapters, and we're going to cover tonight only chapter 27, which is on one of, the, of these pages. So what chapter 27 is all about is... Moses commanding Israel immediately after they enter the Holy Land, the Promised Land, to perform a ceremony. And that ceremony requires them to write the law on stone, covered with plasters. They would cover stone with plasters and write the law on all the stones. So why is it that they they need to do that? Well, because the covenant is so important that the very first act of Israel entering the promised land is to ratify the covenant one more time. 
the covenant is so important that as soon as they enter the promised land, the first thing they must do is ratify the covenant. Think of it almost like a renewal of marital vows. Or when the husband and the wife enter their new house, right? they essentially are ratifying that covenant between the two of them. That's what's happening here. This whole ceremonial of writing the law on the two on rocks is to ratify the covenant, and then it is followed by, interestingly enough, by, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 11 I think 12, I think it's 12 curses, then count them. There are 12 curses that are pronounced in chapter 27. So before I go there, I just want to point out something to you. Verse 9 of chapter 27. Verse 9, chapter 27. An interesting little verse. Here's what it says. Moses and the Levitical priest said to all of Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. So for those of you who attend the Maronite liturgy, when we have the proclamation of the gospel, right before that, what do we say? Yeah, yeah, but what, the deacon has a proclamation. It's very special. Remain silent, Remain silent or listener. That's what it comes from. That remain silent of listener, for the word of God is about to be read to you. Give thanks and glory glory to the living word of God, right? That was put into the Maronite liturgy as an echo from Leviticus. You've entered the new promised land, the new Jerusalem, and the law of God is about to be read to you. That is covenantal language. That means everything that this gospel is saying, you are to do. We've lost that. This is not simply, okay, be quiet and don't talk. Right? This is covenantal language echoing the realm. You've entered the Holy Land. Now listen to what I'm about to say because this is going to regulate your life. That's the meaning of it. And then verse 10, You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments, and the statutes which I command you this day. That's what we we do. We listen. We obey the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. We keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded us every day. Oh, 11. Yeah, so there's 12. Like I said, there are 12 curses which are anatomized. And let me actually read them to you, because they're not easy to understand on their own. So, cursed be the man who makes a graven or molten image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. Cursed be he who dishonors his father and his mother. Cursed be he who removes his neighbor's landmark. And notice, every time, and the people shall say, Amen. They're giving assent. They're saying, I believe. Right? So, meaning, I believe that God will curse the person who does those things. That's what that Amen says, right? Cursed be, the, the, be, be he who misleads a blind man on the road. Cursed be, the, be he who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. Cursed be he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered her who is his, his, who is his father's. Cursed be he who lies with any kind of beast. Cursed be he who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. Cursed be he who lies with his mother-in-law. 
Cursed be he who slays his neighbor in secret. Cursed be he who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. Cursed be he who does not confirm the words of, his, of this law by doing them. So, what is important for us to understand, first of all, is that all of these are tied to the Ten Commandments, which is very interesting. They're not tied to the law of Moses. They're tied to the Ten Commandments. How so? The first and the third commandment is the first one, 2715, right? And then I've given them, I've gave you this little table on, the, on, the, on that page, right? You can see that, and I'm going to read it now. The fifth commandment is 2716. The tenth is 2717. The sixth commandment is 27, 18, 19, 24, and 25. The seventh commandment is 27, 20, 21, 22, 23. And the fourth commandment is 27, 26. So again, the first to the third commandment are in the first curse, 27, 15. The fifth is in 27, 16. The tenth in 27, 17. The sixth commandment, which, is, which deals with the um, uh, carnal sin, is in 18, 19, 24, and 25. The seventh is in 20, 21, 22, 23. And the fourth is in 26. But still, it would seem curious that these are the ones, these are the curses that are being pronounced. Right after the end of the Holy why would they do that? Because Moses is well aware that many of the Israelites will do what the law asks legalistically. They will not put their heart into it. All these sins, all these curses are associated with sins committed in secret. That's the key. All the curses are for those who will commit those sins and no one will be able to tell. If we read them carefully, we can hear it. Cursed be he who perverts... No, sorry, this is 19. Just a second. We go back. So... In 15, cursed be the man who makes a graven or molten image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. That's the key. Sets it up. Not just make a statue, but sets it up, meaning he's worshipping that statue in secret. Hmm? Cursed be he who dishonors his father or his mother. Well, most of the time these things happen inside the house. Nobody would be able to tell especially if the parents are elderly, right? No one can say, no one can tell. Cursed be he who removes his neighbor's landmark. Usually you don't remove your neighbor's landmark with marks his land in bright daylight. You do it at night in secret. Cursed be he who misleads a blind man on the road, but the blind man can't tell who misled him, right? Cursed be he who perverts the, the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. These are three categories of people who are defenseless. Their word cannot stand in a court of law. So they have no way of being able to defend themselves. Cursed be he who lies with his father's wife because he hasn't covered her who is his father's. I mean, usually, you know, that doesn't happen in a public square. Yeah? So all of these sexual sins do happen again in secret. And then... Uh, Cursed be he who slays his neighbor in secret. That is repeated. And cursed be he who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. Again, you do that in secret. And cursed be he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. That's the only one, the last one, which is all-encompassing. 
that doesn't involve secret. Why is Moses focusing on that? Because remember, the law does not heal. The law does not forgive intentional sins. The law is set only for unintentional sins. That's all you can do. If you commit a sin intentionally, there is punishment for that. There is no substitution. It's only when you commit a sin unintentionally that you can go offer a sacrifice. And then your sacrifice is accepted. So what can pollute Israel? What can deform Israel? What can put Israel in jeopardy? Sin. And what is the worst form of sin, therefore? It's the one done in secret because no one knows. Now think about our society, right? Not even in secret, right? So that's why Moses sets these curses up front. It's to guard or try to ward against the sins that are intentional and hidden, the worst kind. Jesus, in his ministry, keys off of those and takes it a step further. Basically says, if you have that intention, it's enough. You already committed it. But Jesus offers a way out because he commands us to be perfect as his Father is perfect. Be merciful as my Father is merciful. That means the same thing. And back to what I said earlier, we on our own cannot be perfect and we on our own cannot be merciful. And if you really understand this command, you should stand up and scream in despair, I cannot do it. And Jesus will answer you and he would say, I know, but I can't. So both commands are a calling to us to recognize that on our own there is no way we're going to be perfect like his father is perfect. There's no way we're going to be merciful like his father is merciful. But then we look at the cross and we remember the covenant and the promise that he made on the cross. And therefore our assurance that we can be perfect like his father is perfect and merciful, like his Father is merciful, does not rest in us or anything we can do, but in the cross. And the promise he made on the cross. And he is God, and he is faithful one, and his word shall never be annulled. Therefore, what he promised, he will make happen. Despite our incredulity, despite our disbelief. Right? That's what Moses is after here in that chapter. And then after this, next week, we'll lead into chapter 28 and go through the various curses, look at them, and understand what is the intent of all these blessings and curses and why are being said before Israel. All right? So let's um, finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. Yes, question. David. The question is, uh, why are the uh, commandments, why are the uh, curses being brought up in such a way that you see this distribution against the commandments. They're not going by commandment to commandment. I am the Lord your God. Do not make yourself an image. Is that what you're saying? Those are actually two separate commandments. Yeah, you have, multi, you have, you have some different ways of listing the ten. But one of which is, I am the Lord your God. That's one. Do not make another image of me. That's the second. And then the third is, um, you shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false witness, you shall not covet your neighbor's house and wife. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's essentially, those are the ten, right? Okay. I don't think I missed anyone. I don't think I missed any of the commandments, right? Yes. He saw, the, yeah, the question is, you know, why is it that Moses did not enter the promised land, right? Yeah. This is a very good question. You see, this is something to keep in mind when it comes to God. God makes no favorites. There's no favorites with God, right? That's why it's so important to honor his justice, to always keep in mind his justice, because Moses was the man he saw face to face. I mean, Moses was the one who entered into the tent, his face would glow, and he did not. He saw the promised land. He would not enter. God did not allow him to enter. Yes. So keep that in mind, and also remember, and that's something should, that should cause us to be really in awe. Moses did not have a priest to go to for confession. We do. Yeah? Yes. So, so if, if you're talking to a, a friend who is a Protestant and he says, let's use the King James Bible, um, I think you want to ask him, what is the topic of discussion? Because at the end of the day, when you talk to a Protestant friend, you want to bring him back to the source, which is sola fide, sola scriptura. Everything else doesn't matter. What you need to ask him is, okay, let's talk about scripture, but let's figure out how scripture came to be. What is the source of scripture? And if you say, all I need is the scripture, is the Bible, and you can ask him, very good, show me where the Bible says all you need is the Bible. So that's how you orient the conversation. Not so much about this passage or that passage, because that will get you in a maze that's very difficult to get out of. And the other one is, obviously, when they say all that we need is the faith. Then there you can quote from the King James Bible, from the letter of St. James, right? Faith without works is dead. And you can start your conversation going from there. Yeah? What is important for you in talking to them is to help them see that their position isn't as sure as they thought it was. Once you can instill that doubt in their mind that perhaps they don't have the fullness of the truth, they may be on their way. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.